Um, <clears throat> I wanted to kind of give just a little bit of insight into what we'll be doing over the, the coming, um, the next coming, coming weeks. Obviously, uh, next week and the week after that, we won't be meeting, but then, uh, and, and uh, when we start back in January, we'll be diving into a little bit more of this series, The Knowledge of God. Um, but what I'm hoping to do is we've been talking about some of the attributes of God and how we, how we understand those attributes, um, how we understand who God is. And we've been talking about the incommunicable attributes of God, those attributes of God that he does not share with anybody else that are unique only to him. So we've been discussing what sorts of things those are and talking a little bit more about them. Hopefully we're going to be able to wrap that up tonight. Um, and then when we start back at the beginning of next year, we're going to talk about the communicable attributes of God, those things that he shares with us. And once we get, hopefully that'll last for a couple of weeks, maybe two Wednesdays or so, and then we'll go into the Trinity where we'll be talking a, a little bit more about the triune Godhead and trying to understand how, how would we describe that? How do we explain it? How do we not explain it? How do we wrap our minds around that, what, what we can understand? But then what I'm hoping to do is after we get through with that, take a, a brief pause and dive into some of the occult, and that sounds really bad, not dive into the occult, but seek to understand some of the ways the occult tries to mimic God and how it's different than the God we're talking about, right? Some of those things that uh, Mormons would come to your door and would try to explain who they see God to be and how we can take the things that we already know about God and say, no, that's, that's not what we believe, right? And how those, uh, the occult kind of comes in, uh, I guess you would say, conflict with the God that we are understanding uh, here on Wednesday night. So um, that's what I'm hoping we'll be able to do over the next few weeks. So uh, just bear with me as we go through uh, all of this. Um, just as a review, like I said, we've been, we've been looking at the incommunicable and the communicable attributes of God. Those incommunicable attributes are those attributes that God does not have in common with others. And then we've also, we'll be talking about soon the communicable attributes of God, those things that he shares with us, those things that are true about him that he shares with us. And so far, we have listed two incommunicable attributes of God. First is his independence, and second is his immutability. And what do we mean when we say God is independent? Pop quiz. You didn't know you had to take a test. What do we mean when we say God is independent? Yeah, he is not in need of us, and he is not in need of the rest of creation. So, um, he, but at the same time, we also said, yes, that's true, but he does find joy in his creation, right? We are able to please him. We are able to worship him. He does interact with his creation. Though he doesn't need us, he does allow us to serve him, and we do bring him joy as his children, right? Now, immutability. What is immutability? I'm going to go back. What is immutability? God is unchanging. Dr. David Maxwell on display for everybody. <laughs> Give him a gold star. Uh, God is immutable. He is he's unchanging in his being, his perfections, his purposes, and his promises. And yet at the same time, we do see occasions in Scripture where God expresses emotion 
where he does say that sin, for instance, grieves him. There is a, a, a bit of a difference in the way God expresses emotion than the way a human being would express emotion, right? There, if, if I woke up tomorrow and I learned that one of my close family members died, am I going to have a choice whether or not I experience grief? Not at all. I'm going to go through grief. When my children do things, anger sometimes happens, right? <laughs> we often as humans, part of just the human experience is that we lose our cool. We wake up on the wrong side of the bed. All right, when we say that God is immutable, we don't mean that he doesn't have emotion. Of course we do. But when we say he has emotion, we also don't mean that he is required to act a certain way under certain circumstances. That he is completely in control of his emotions, right? Okay. Now, let's start off with some scripture before we dive in tonight. So, uh, who will take Psalm 90, uh, verse 2 and 4? Verses 2 and 4. Psalm 90, 2 and 4. David Maxwell, Susan Maples, will you take Job 36, 26? Uh, Revelation 1, 8 and 4, 8. All right. Uh, John 8, 58. All right, Marion. Uh, and 2 Peter 3, 8. Who will take that? 2 Peter 3, 8. Uh, all right, uh, Margaret Matters, if you'll do that. All right. Psalm 90, uh, verse 2 and 4, when you have that. What's the last <laughs> Job 36, 26. All right. Revelation 1, 8 and 4, 8. All right. John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Second Peter three eight. That's okay. No, second Peter three eight. Second Peter three eight is the last one. Second Peter three eight. All right, when you hear all of those verses read, what are you seeing the commonality that's coming to the, coming to the surface here? What are we learning about God in this? Okay, it's timeless. Is there any other words? Eternal. God is timeless or eternal. 
Eternality, the eternality of God. Um, my, uh, my kids have just now got started getting into VeggieTales. VeggieTales was something I grew up on as a kid. Uh, but they're just now starting to discover, and, and we can talk about the merits and demerits of VeggieTales. I'm not crazy about VeggieTales, but they do have some catchy songs, <laughs> right? And my kids love to listen to some of their songs. One of the songs that they like the best this, uh, this kid watches a scary uh, movie on TV, and he's lying in his bed, and he's feeling kind of sleepy, but he can't close his eyes because the room is getting creepy, right? <laughs> and so he starts seeing monsters and things like this. And so, you know, the, the question is posed to him, what are you going to do, you know? And he's thinking, well, I, I'm going to go to the biggest thing that I can. I'm going to call the police, you know, and the, the chorus breaks in, well, God is bigger than the boogeyman, you know, and my kids just break out into this chorus and start singing all over the, all over the place. But one of the things that I've noticed, uh, and it wasn't necessarily our intention, really, but one of the things that's happened as a result of reading scripture and hearing songs like that and, and, and things of that nature around the house is, is our kids have started to talk about how grand God is, how big he is. And they don't understand it, but they try to relate it. And well, I guess none of us do, but they try to relate it to some of the things go on in their daily life. And so it's not uncommon for us around our house to say, well, you know, I can't lift that up. It's, it's too heavy. And for Andrew to say, well, God could lift it up. You know? <laughs> and, and it's the only way that they can understand this is how big and how grand God is. And I think one of the things that this really helps us to do in terms of um, trying, to, trying to break uh, the, down uh, Scripture into these categories is, is it, it helps us to kind of understand that God is something that we can't fully understand. That He's, he's, uh, he's, he's huge. And, and I think some of the, the issues that we run into on a daily basis, some of the times where we um, feel really in despair or uh, have a lot of heartache or, or whatever, uh, we tend to retreat into our uh, thinking that this God that we serve is too small or too weak to help. And it raises the question, why don't we turn to him in prayer? If this is the God that we really do believe in, that he is eternal, that what the, the scriptures that we just read are really true, it, it really makes, it should make us ask, why do we ever get up off our knees? Why do we ever cease to pray? Why do we ever say amen? Why don't we just continue? Uh, because he is the only one that can answer. And I think some of these, these things that we're studying, I know for, for some of us, maybe it's, it's something we've never heard before, or maybe some of us it's an old hat. But I, th- I think one thing that it does serve to do is to help communicate exactly the kind of God that we serve and how distinct he is from all of the other false gods that the culture serves. So the eternality of God, when we say God is eternal, what do we mean? What does it mean that God is eternal? Say it again, Pat. He's forever, right? Um, He has no beginning and no end. No beginning and no end or succession of moments in his own being. Like He he doesn't uh, doesn't, uh, account time the way we account time. That also means then 
He, he doesn't grow in knowledge. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. He doesn't gain knowledge. We're not telling God anything he doesn't already know. Um, he has no beginning, end, or succession of moments in his own being. He sees all time equally vividly. It was a, a good uh, depiction of this that I, I think will, will be helpful. Um, is the way we understand God is to be outside of time. He's timeless. And as he looks down on us, or as he looks at us, he sees uh, all of uh, the moments of time before him. So it would be kind of like saying, I guess, uh, like we would look at a film strip, being able to see every single moment of the film all at one time. This is God sitting outside of time, being eternal, having, is not subject himself to time, being able to see everything all at once. Now, let's read these two scriptures. Let's throw in a little, little wrench. Galatians 4, 4 to 5. You can take that. Galatians 4, 4 to 5. Philip, Susan, will you take Acts 17, 30 to 31? Go ahead, Phil, whenever you're ready. All right, Susan. So what is God doing in these two passages of Scripture? What is he doing? Yeah. So we just described God as eternal. That would seem to indicate he's not subject to time in any kind of way. But then we read Scripture that says... Well, there's appointed times where he does things. So even though God is eternal, we would also say at the same time, he sees events in time and acts in time. Whether on our behalf or judging the world or various other things. The, the danger in seeing uh, the eternality of God is that we can look at God as someone who is distant and who doesn't care at all. And yet what we see in Scripture is, is contrary to that. Even though God is outside time, even though he doesn't, he's not subject to time, he still acts in time. He still comes into our world and interacts with us. We don't believe in a God who sits out there in the universe, who set everything in motion, and then who sets... Uh, on, his, on his throne and never interacts with humanity. Yes? Questions, comments, thoughts on that? Yeah, like we don't care. We this is it. <laughs> Say again. That's right. Right, right, right. So how do, we, how do we then, like, why is that important for us? 
Why is the eternality of God, why does that even matter to us? Why do we care? Why should we care? How will we be different than, than God? <laughs> okay. I guess the difference would be, though, that we have a beginning, right? He, he doesn't. Truly, truly, true eternality would be have no beginning, right? We have a beginning, we'll be everlasting. Yeah. So uh, why does it matter that we understand that we serve a God that is eternal? You tell me. Why would that matter? Go ahead. We can trust every promise he's made because he's already appointed. He's a guarantor. He is, he, is, he was there in the past when it was made. He's here now and he's there in the future where it's completed. Yeah. Um, those passages in... Uh, well, both the, the quote of Jesus, I think it's in John, and then the two verses in Revelation where he says, I was, I am, and I, I, the, who was, who is, who is to come. Um, is expressing just that. When he tells Moses in the burning bush his name, tell them that I am sent you. It's timeless. Why else? Any other reason why the eternality of God matters to us? Why would we care? So that we can trust in, in our future, that we have a future. Yeah. That he will always be there for us. Yeah. Whether we're here on this earth or in another plane. That's right. We have a future in, in his That's kingdom. right. Yeah, amen. That's, that's some of the other comfort that's given to us in Revelation as well, is to the one that endures... I will give him a new name. To the one who endures, I will give him this. To the one who endures, I will give him this. Revelation 2 and 3, promises to the churches, every single one of them. To the one who endures, I will give this. He's the only one that can grant that. He's eternal. And this is not like Mormonism, right? This, is, this would be contra to any Mormon that's ever going to show up on your door. This is not, we're not talking about the same God here, though they would like to convince you that we are. This is not the same God. Their God had a beginning. He was perfect in his world, and then he inherited ours. That's not the God we believe in. We don't believe a God in a God that needed anything. He's independent. He is eternal. There never was a time when he was not. He never was created. Yeah. Questions, comments, concerns, thoughts? The eternality of God. How could you ever have peace without that? Yeah. It really is a, a powerful point, I think. Eternality of God. All right, a few more verses for another attribute of God. Uh, 
incommunicable attribute. Who will take Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24? Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24. Not everybody all at once. All right, Dave Maxwell. Uh, Psalm 139, 7 to 10. All right. Oh, is that Shannon Grant? Uh, and then, Lori, if you'll take uh, 1 Kings 8, uh, 27. Psalm 139, 7 to 10. What are we seeing here that's true, that, the, that the Word of God is revealing about the character of God or the, the person of God? Everywhere. everywhere. He is omnipresent, right? That's the fancy $8 word for, for God is everywhere. Is he is omnipresent. Every single place God is there. So how do we define omnipresence? This is how we would define it. God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point of space with his whole being. Does that work? All right. So um, I was taught as a kid, uh, I heard this a number of times, you probably have too, God is not in hell. Hell would be a place where one is completely separate from God. I remember the teacher that told me this, and I asked him, how can God be omnipresent if he is not in hell? That would seem to be a place where he's not, right? And truth be told, uh, I don't know where this idea comes from, because let's, let's take a look at some other scriptures. Let's look Amos 9, 1 through 4. Who will take that? Was that a Shannon? I thought I saw Shannon's hand go up. Yeah, Amos 9, 1 to 4. I'll just start calling on people, I guess. Colossians 1, 17. Now some hands. All right, so one, one take Colossians 1, 17, and then Hebrews 1, 3. All right, Marion. And then uh, Psalm 16, 11. All right, Jasmine, if you'll take that. Whoever's Amos, uh, whenever you get there, it's uh, it's in the minor prophets. We give you we give you a ten minute grace period. <laughs> one, one to four.
So what are we seeing there in that passage? Because each one of these passages is just a little bit different, but what are we seeing there in that passage? There's no out of bounds, right? And, and that's specifically in the context of his punishment against wickedness. There is absolutely no place where he cannot and is not going. Especially in regards of the punishment of people. Because right? that's what we were, taught, we were talking about with hell. Like, it, that, it, like what I was taught growing up, maybe some of you were taught the very same thing. Well, God is not in hell. Hell is completely uh, set apart from God. God is not there. You are completely separate from God there. It doesn't seem like that's true. That God is there even in the punishment of the wicked, no matter where they go. All right. Colossians 1, 17. Who has that? I don't know if we signed I think I saw Pat and Ann's. Ann, go ahead and take it. Okay, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Let's couple that with Hebrews 1, 3. What are those two saying about, one saying about uh, Christ and the other about God? What, what is it saying about him? What is it saying about him? And readers again, Colossians 1.17. In him, all things hold together. What is that saying about God? He's sovereign. He's sovereign. So we see that he's, he's everywhere in punishment, but we also see that he is literally in everything holding it together uh, to the atomical level. Uh, uh, yeah, ato- am I saying that right? Atomical level? It feels wrong when it comes out of my mouth. Is it right? Uh, uh, what? Atomic level. There we go. That's the word I'm looking for. To, to the atomic level. Maybe the subatomic level. However little you could possibly go. He is everywhere holding all things together. So he is omnipresent in the punishment even of the wicked. He is omnipresent in the fact that he sustains all things. He holds all things together. And Psalm 1611, who has that? Okay, go ahead All right, now what is it saying about God there? What's true of his presence in that, in that verse? What's that? There's fullness of joy. There's blessing in his presence. And so I think the, the vast majority of us, when we think of the presence of God, what we think of is his blessing. That God is present in blessing us. If, we, if I were to stand up here at the pulpit on Sunday morning and I were to pray for God's presence to be here. Some of you would think, well, he is here. He is omnipresent. Therefore, he is here already. His Holy Spirit indwells us. So, therefore, if 
believers are in the room, he is there in the flesh, in us, in some ways. But what do we really mean when we say, God, be here? Through blessing, right? The vast majority of the way we speak is God's presence in regards to blessing, but that's not the only way God's presence is felt. The first verse clearly tells us that God's presence is felt even in punishment. God's presence is felt whether we can actually feel it or not, we know that the whole universe is being held together by Him. And of course, God's presence is felt in blessing and fullness of joy. Now, so what we would say about the omnipresence of God is God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point of space with his whole being, yet God acts differently in different places. Why does that matter? Why would that matter to us? Why does God's omnipresence matter? Because we are individuals communicating with him. Okay. And he has a relationship with each one of us. Yes. It's not a relationship to a building, to a community, to a church. It is a relationship to each individual. Yes. There are times where you'll hear people talk about this being the house of God. And that should cause us a little bit of pause. This is a building. This is a building. God cannot be housed. Even Solomon admits that as he's building the temple. Can I really build a temple that would contain God? Are his dwelling place and the earth is his footstool? Are we really expecting that we can build a house where he will dwell? It's dangerous when we talk like that. Why else does this matter? It's assurance that we're never alone. Yeah, you're never alone. It, that, it's assurance on one side, and there should be a little bit of uh, fear and reverence on the other side. Uh, because when we sin, what do we do? We run to secret places, right? That's where sin is, in the alone times. And sometimes when we can't get alone, we even crawl into the inner recesses of our heart, and there sin happens. But there is no place where God is not. So you can't outrun Him. Should, there should be a little bit of fear in that. There is no truly secret place. Jesus even points this out in our, in, in, in our prayer life. When he talks about praying to God, as opposed to the Pharisees who pray in the streets so that they can be heard by people, he tells his people to do what? Go into a closet. Go into the most secret of all places. Because God who hears in secret knows, right? There, there is no place that you can run where he is not. And so that, that means then, I think, that in those times where we're tempted to hide and, and not disclose the sin that's really in our heart, there's no point in doing that. He already knows. He's seen you do it. 
He's heard your thoughts. There's no possible way you can hide anything from him. And it should also cause us comfort. Because I know, as you, and you felt this, I know I felt it in, at times in our life, and I, and, and I think there's probably people around you as the prayer requests have come out that are probably feeling this right now where you pray and you feel like your prayers hit the ceiling and come right back down. The truth is, he knew it before you even spoke it. Not only does he hear, but he doesn't hear from heaven. He hears from right next to you. (laughs) That's comforting. It's to me. All right. Last, we're going to do this a little bit backwards from the way we've done everything else. Uh, God's God's unity, and let's define that first. What I mean when I say God, uh, God's unity. God is not divided into parts, yet we see different attributes of God emphasized at different times. Now, what do we mean when we say uh, when we talk about God's unity? God is unified. That means that we can't say in one place, well, there God is wrath, but there God is love. At all times, God is wrath and love. At all times, he is all of his attributes. Does that make sense? The, the reason why this, is, uh, har- uh, this needs to be pointed out, and it's difficult, uh, I think, in our culture, is that so many people want to take Jesus, God in the flesh, and they want to isolate him to the Jesus of the Gospels, right? Well, there, there's, there's, there we see Jesus. And there we see Jesus like this. And, and the Jesus we see in Revelation, that's not really Jesus, right? <laughs> that's somebody else. Or let's flip back to the Old Testament. Well, that was back when we didn't really know who God was. That's, a, that's, some other, that's somebody else. But then when you flip to the New Testament, that's the nice God, that we find, right? He's the compassionate and loving one, and the one in the Old Testament is not. This is a a total mischaracterization of God. He is all of his attributes at all times and in all places, all right? Um, Let's let's read. Who wants to take uh, Exodus, just one verse, Exodus 34, uh, 6 6 through 7? Who will take that? Exodus 34. All right, Shannon. That's okay. No, you're good. What do we see there in that passage? He sees all and he's going to respond to all. He sees all and he's going to respond to all. What were you going to say, Shannon? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. 
Yes, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll punish. He is all things at all time, and we err when we try to communicate God's love and stay away from his wrath because I'm not comfortable talking about his wrath. That's not communicating God. Now, when we ask, like, why does all of this matter? When I was a kid, uh, kind of touching on more of what my kids are starting to learn now, when I was a kid, I was discipled by a man named Otis Fisher, and you'll hear me talk about him a lot if you haven't already. He's, uh, he's, he was 66 years older than me, so I was about four years old when I met Otis, and uh, he was just such a, a great man. He, he never, he grew up kind of during the Dust Bowl-ish era in Oklahoma and was adopted. And he, um, he, uh, he, he made grandfather clocks and doors and just everything he taught himself, everything that he knew he taught himself. When he wasn't making grandfather clocks and carving doors out of blocks of wood, he studied the Bible. Literally all he did when he wasn't working with his hands. And everything that he knew was, I guess you would say, self-taught. I mean, obviously, he read and things like that. Um, and I remember uh, from a very early age looking up to him. And when I was young, he taught me everything that I, that I, that I know. And some of the things that I, that I even understand today came from him. And I'm really grateful for him. But the, the, the best thing that I think he ever gave me, and I don't know that he really knows he gave me this, um, from a very early age, he emphasized to me how unsurpassable the God that we serve really is. And I can't tell you in my life what that has done for me. Because growing up, there was, a, we had, I, there was a lot of things that were going on in our family, a lot of difficulties and strife that we went through when I was a kid. And... Um, and all leading up to eventually my parents splitting when I was much older. Uh, but we dealt with all this for a long time as a child. It was like pulling a Band-Aid off really slowly. And there was a lot of really hard times uh, uh, growing up like that, in that kind of atmosphere and environment. And, um, and I think in those times, the only thing that brought me comfort was knowing that God was eternal was knowing that he was omnipresent, that he was everywhere. There was never a time when my prayers hit the ceiling and came back down. That didn't also mean that I knew what was best for me and that all of my prayers were going to be answered. At any one period of time in my house, on any given meal, three-fifths of my house want cake for dinner. And sometimes five-fifths of my house want cake for dinner. That doesn't mean that that's what's best for us. Right? And it did me good growing up to know that not only could I, could I, I pray, not only would they be heard, but that this unsurpassable, all-knowing, infinite God knew what was best for me. And that somewhere in his sovereign plan, all things were working together for my good. And that I could read those things in Scripture and trust in them. Because he was eternal. He declared the beginning from the end. And everything in between. 
And I think it was only because Otis gave that to me. He taught me that and reinforced that in me. That it helped me in those times to realize that I could actually say God is in control and not just be a cliche that we just use because we have no other answers, but that we can actually say, no, he really is in control. And that there's never any temptation as a Mormon comes to my door to be persuaded by their arguments because the God that they serve or claim to serve is drastically inferior than the God I serve. It would be a demotion for me to leave this position and go to theirs. Now, knowing that this is the God that we serve, that these are his incommunicable attributes, think about this for just a second. An all-knowing, omnipresent, eternal God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of for sin. Here is this eternal, all-knowing, unsurpassing God. And yet, what does he do with our sin? Remembers it no more. So think about the incommunicable attributes of God and then ask the question, how amazing is God's forgiveness? To think that I could stand before him justified and not just justified, but that my sins are thrown as far as the east is from the west. That he has chosen in his sovereignty and in his eternality to forget my sin. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. There is something going around our culture right now that likes to say that us and Islam, even Judaism, all serve the same God. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, name them. We all serve the same God. I grant you the three-letter title God is the same. But how different can the characteristics be before they become entirely different beings altogether? There is none like him. These are his attributes. If you serve a God whose attributes are different than the ones that we've described, that is not this God that you are serving. Is that clear? I think you can stand confident on your doorstep as people come knocking and describe to you something other than this. You haven't misread your Bible. Everything that we've just read, or everything that we've just said, we've read in Scripture first. 
And after reading it in Scripture, you've identified it. You've called it out. God is eternal. God is omnipresent. Anyone that preaches to you a different God than this is not telling you about the real God. It's not the God of Scripture, for sure. Questions, comments, concerns, thoughts? Right. 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 In in spite of the amount of scrutiny it's been under. Right. And I, and I've heard this before. This is not original to me, but it is still a very good point, or I wouldn't say it. Uh, <laughs> um. I think I, I don't remember actually who it was that said it. Um, but that the, the Quran uh, it does not lend itself to the kind of scrutiny that the Bible lends itself to. The authentic Quran is in one dialect of Arabic. And if it's translated out of that dialect, it's no longer the authentic Quran. That dialect is spoken by about 1% of the Arabic-speaking population. doesn't lend itself to scrutiny. And yet God's word, as we've discovered, as soon as it was written, copy it, translate it, put it in as many languages as you possibly can, it can and will endure. And it has. Any other questions or thoughts or comments? Let me think about it for a second. I need to start putting them down. So this one is Isaiah 46, 8 and 9, I believe. And this one is Hebrews. Oh, I can't remember the chapter. Somebody look it up. You'll find it 14 through 18. Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. I'll have to, I'll have to look it up. Yeah. Hebrews 14. And it, uh, there's a chapter in there. Yep, sure is. 14 through 18. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, Margaret. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's wonderful. Hebrews 10, 14 through 18. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll get out of here.
Heavenly Father, um, we are grateful that you have seen fit in your sovereignty and your grace and your mercy to call us your people. We realize that we don't deserve it. And yet in your mercy you have done it. I pray, Lord, that the your attributes, things that are exclusively yours, as we dwell on those, as we think about them, as we meditate on them, they will lead us to thanksgiving for what you have chosen in your sovereignty and your mercy and your grace and your wisdom to give to us. That it will lead us to adoration of who you are in your person and your works. It will lead us to confession of the fact that we are woefully short of your glory. I pray that it will allow us to turn to you in supplication and ask for the things that we need. Turn to you and you alone because only you can supply our every need. We're grateful for who you are and what you have revealed about yourself to us, both in your word and in the person of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.